If you will turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, I'd like to return to where we spent some time last Sunday. Welcome to the Grace and Mercy Hour, brought to you by Rocky Mount Church in Arab, Alabama. Rocky Mount Church is a primitive Baptist congregation, a family-integrated church that seeks to worship God in spirit and in truth, a church that seeks to maintain the simplicity of New Testament worship. Thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned at the end of the broadcast for contact information, and may the Lord bless our time together today. I appreciate very much the remarks that Brother Joshua brought to us last Sunday concerning the depravity of man. Very important, very fundamental truth, the depravity of man. And as he very ably explained to us, a truth that is necessary to understand so that we can have a good understanding of the other truths of the Bible. The depravity of man, the nature of man. The truth that we all, by nature, are sinners. Now, we're sinners by practice, but we're sinners by practice because we're sinners by nature. And we're born with that nature. We come into this world with a sinful nature, a fallen nature, and without any ability to recover ourselves. And so I appreciate Brother Joshua laying out that fundamental truth for us. I tried to... Um, follow with some remarks from Romans chapter 8, and we did somewhat of a survey of the if-then statements in Romans chapter 8. And so I'd like to go back to that. <clears throat> we'll remind you of a couple of things that I tried to point out concerning statements like that. You know, if-then. If-then statements. They're conditional statements. We use them in a couple of different ways. One way that we look at if-then statements is simply this. If a condition is met, then a certain result will occur. Okay, that, that, makes, that makes sense. And that's probably the most, one of the most common ways that we use these if-then statements. If a condition is met, then a certain result will occur. A passage of Scripture, a verse of Scripture that I shared um, to, to illustrate that is, is simply this. In Isaiah chapter 1, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. If then, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. There's a condition that must be met, and in that case, a condition that we must meet in order to uh, enjoy results that, that will occur. And there's a promise there if we meet those conditions. Another way that we use these if-then statements or that we look at them is this. If a certain condition exists, okay, which doesn't necessarily say anything about whether I meet the condition or you meet the condition, but simply if a condition exists, okay? And I think it's very important to make the distinction between these. If a condition exists, then a certain conclusion can be drawn, okay? Does that make sense? If a certain condition exists then a particular uh, conclusion can be drawn. And one of the examples I shared with you last time, I think, was 
from John chapter 8, the words of Jesus, where he said to his disciples, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. In that same chapter, he says, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. So there's a condition that is met. On the one hand, if you continue in my word, there's the condition that you must meet, then shall you be my disciples. On the other hand, here's a condition that exists that you didn't have anything to do with. It, with okay, A condition where Jesus says, if the Son therefore shall make you free. <laughs> you didn't have anything to do with that, but it's a condition that must be met, that must exist in order for a conclusion to be, to be drawn. If, you, if you've been set free, if you've been made free by the, by the Spirit of Almighty God, then you are free indeed, whether you realize it, whether you acknowledge it or not. Then there was one other that if a condition exists, then a certain action ought to be taken. Okay? It's still an if-then statement. If a certain condition exists, if this be the case, then you ought to do this. And one of the examples I gave last time was from Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ. Again, a condition that is, that is met, a condition that exists that you didn't have anything to do with. If ye then be risen with Christ... Here's the action to take. Seek those things which are above. Okay? So we kind of looked at those. With, with those in mind, we looked at several statements in chapter 8. Several if-then statements. And not every time is the word if or the word then, either one or both, they may not be actually in the statement, but there's still a conditional statement like that. Okay? So we ended up in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul writes, What shall we then say to these things? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now here's an if-then statement. that in, It's actually a question. If God be for us, if that's the condition, if that's the case, if that's the situation, then who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer we could presume, and the answer is there, before we can look at this verse, uh, I hope it stands out to you when he says, what shall we then say to these things? For us to understand this second part of the verse, we've we got to look back some. So let's break this verse apart. Romans 8, verse 31 what shall we then say to these things? First of all, I would ask this question. Who is we? Who is Paul talking about when he says, What shall we then say? What shall we then say? It's very important that when we're studying Scripture that we look at the context. As you've heard many, many times, we need to look at who is doing the writing. We know that's the Apostle Paul. We need to look at to whom he is writing. We understand just from the title of this letter that he's writing to the Romans. But sometimes we need to be more specific than that. Uh, sometimes within a, a letter to a church, Paul might be writing about someone else when he's writing to these people over here. So we, it, context is critical, friends. Context is critical. Who is we? Who is we? Back up to verse 26 
and 27. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul is writing, as we've already said, to the Romans. He's writing, as we learn in the first chapter, in the first few verses, in verse 6 in particular, he is writing to those who are called of Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully. When he, when he introduces this letter, he, he mentions, first of all, why, or at least part of the purpose for this letter. Romans 1, verse 5. He's writing this letter, he says, for obedience to the faith. One of the reasons that the entirety of Scripture is written is so that you and I as God's children would know how to faithfully obey the Lord, to walk in faithful obedience. Not only to know that we should do that, but also to know how to do that. You know, and, and sometimes those are two different, I mean, they're not different things, but one escapes me at times. I know that I should walk in faithful obedience, but I don't always know how or what to do. God's Word helps me with that. God's Word sometimes gets into some very, very details. It gives me some specifics on what I ought to be doing so that I might be found walking in faithful obedience. He says that he's writing this letter for the obedient, obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And then he says to the Romans, listen carefully now, among whom also ye are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to those in Rome who are the called of Jesus Christ. He says to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Paul is writing to those in Rome who are beloved of God. Those who are called. Called of Christ and called to be like Christ. Okay? Just in this immediate context in Romans chapter 8, you can see that Paul is saying to these Romans, he, and he includes himself, we, we, the, the Spirit helps our infirmities. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know what to pray for. And thank God that the Spirit makes intercession for us. Okay? Remember what we're trying to answer here. Who is we? When Paul says, what shall we then say to these things? Who is we? Are we this morning included in that? You back up on a little, a little bit further. Paul writes here in verse 22. We're back in Romans 8. He says in verse 22. He begins in verse 22 speaking about how we as creatures of God, as the creation of God, as children of God, he is writing about how we, how we groan, how there's a longing. There's something within you, child of God, that longs to go on. Oh, there's something in you that, that, that longs to stay. I understand that. But there's something within you that, that, is, that is groaning under the daily weight and burden of, of sin and trials of this life. There's something within you that longs to go on. And Paul is writing about that 
new creature within us that's waiting for something, waiting for the full manifestation of the children of God, the full manifestation of the adoption that is your redemption. There's something in me. You've been redeemed, child of God, but there's something within you that is waiting for the full manifestation of that redemption which includes your very bodies that will live in a glorified state one day in heaven. Amen? That's what we're looking for. That's what we're longing for. And Paul says to, he says, for we are saved by hope. Who's he talking about? Can you relate with Paul this morning? Does that hope, that earnest expectation of the soul that you are waiting for the redemption of your very bodies one day, does that hope lie within you? <laughs> we are saved by hope. It's that hope that delivers us from day to day while we live here in the world. You back up on a little bit further. He says in verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So who is we? We is the children of God. What shall we then say to these things? What shall we as children of God say to these things that Paul has been writing? We have to get the context so that we can answer the question or so we can understand at least if God be for us, who can be against us? Okay? So we've got to get some more of the context. What shall we then to say to these things? What things? What things? Here's a question. It's a legitimate question. No doubt about that. It's a question that God has inspired Paul to pin down. And so we ought to ask, if we are in the we of this verse, we ought to ask the question. What shall we then say to these things? And what things? What things, Paul? What did you have in mind about what are we supposed to be saying about what? Well, these things. Let's back up at least to verse 28. And I think we can get the context. And I think we can answer the question, what things? Ask yourself, what do I say about these things? In verse 28, Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now that verse says so much, but there's some things that that verse doesn't say. That verse says a lot, but there's some things that that verse does not say. If Paul, Paul's asking, what do, what do you say about these things? What things? Well, here Paul says all things. All things? All things without exception? Uh, you might have something to say about all things without exception. A lot of people do. You know, a lot of people have something to say about everything. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says we know that all, we know something. <clears throat> we know something. Here's something we can rest assured. We don't have to doubt about it. You know, I look out there in the world around us and I see a lot of things going on and I have a lot of doubts about what is happening. I don't understand them. I don't know why they're happening. And, and simply because I don't understand doesn't mean that there's something that somebody else doesn't know about it. But, but Paul is telling us something that we do know. We do know. We know something. We know that all things work together for good. Not all things without exception. Not everything that happens in this world. Because Paul says that these things, you see, you've got to get the context. Anytime you see that word all, it's rare that it means all things without exception. 
or all the world without exception, or all people without exception. That is rare in Scripture. It's more often the case that all things or all people or all the world is limited by its context, and that's why context is critical. Paul says we know that all things, whatever these all things are, he says all those things work together. They work together. You know what that means? They cooperate together. They are fellow workers together. Whatever the all things are, they're fellow laborers. They are cooperating with one another. They're operating together. They are operating as companions, and they are operating for the same purpose. They are working and cooperating together for the same purpose. That just limited the all things to only those things that God, may I say it this way, approves. That God does. Those things that are in harmony with God's will. Those things work together for your good. Not all things without exception. Okay, we find this same expression, work together. He says, all things work together. Let me, let me illustrate it this way in this verse of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And when Paul says this, we then, referring to the ministry, we then as workers together with him, that is with God, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Here Paul is talking about the ministry, same expression, working with God, working together with the Holy Spirit of God. And the purpose is that we as children of God would not receive the grace of God in vain, that we would not receive the grace of God and then waste it, abuse it, misuse it, take it for granted, underutilize it, that we would not receive God's grace in vain. Paul says the ministry works together with the Holy Spirit in that regard. They cooperate together. They have the same purpose in mind, same intentions, utilizing the same means, all operating and cooperating together. Paul uses that same expression in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses the same expression when he says this concerning, again, the ministry, when he says that we are laborers together with God. When Paul says we know that all things work together for good, Paul is referring to those things which God has done, that God is doing, and that God will do. Those things will always, without exception, work for your good. Sometimes those things don't feel all that good because part of that, part of God's will, is that we would be, um, that, that we would experience God's love through chastening. And those, don't, those times don't feel all that good, but they still work for our good. They still serve the same purpose to bring about good. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Here's another limiting factor here concerning the all things. We're, asking the, we're answering, trying to answer the question, what shall we then say to these things? Here's some all things that God does that they work for our good. Can't emphasize that enough. They cooperate together. Evil and righteousness will never cooperate together. 
Sin and righteousness will never work together. God overrules. God intervenes. God interjects himself into situations that seem very sinful, very bad, whatever, but God isn't the cause of those things and he's not working your sin out <laughs> so that it will bring about good. And he's not working my sin out to bring about your good and vice versa. God doesn't work, cooperate with sin. Because if you carry that out to its logical conclusion, you make God the author of sin and God forbid. If you go back a few chapters, I don't want to belabor this point, I think it's critical. If you go back a few chapters, Paul has been talking about, um, in the beginning of chapter 6, he says, let's just turn over there real quick, he says this, what shall we then say? Here's another question, what shall we say then? Paul is talking about, he's been talking about how, how where grace or where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Okay, you might, that might sound familiar to you. He says, where sin abounded, grace much, did much more abound. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Man, I can see sin abounding in my life, especially in, in former days. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace overcame. Grace intervened. Grace did much more abound. And Paul says that in the beginning of chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if all things work together, all things without exception, then it doesn't really matter what we're doing, right? Because God is going to work all those things together ultimately for our good, right? If it's all things without exception. But Paul asks the question over there, what shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is God forbid. If God says, I forbid... That means he doesn't approve of it. And if he doesn't approve of something, that means it's sin, and he's not working with sin to bring about your good. Amen? So everything that happens in this life, everything that happens in this world, is not in harmony with God's will. Oh, that doesn't mean he's not in control. God is over all. He can stop it. He can prevent it. He can intervene it, anything he wants to do. But God is not the author of sin. So he says, what shall we then say to these things? Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. There's another limiting factor. These things that are working together work out good for them that love God. What about those that don't love God? These things don't work together for their good. Simply put, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called. All the way back to chapter 1. Them who are called. Called of Christ. Called to be like Christ. These things work together for them. They work together for good. To them that love God and for them who are the called according to his purpose. Then he says this. Then he gets into a few more specifics. For whom he did foreknow. For whom he did foreknow. Now we're, we're, we're trying to answer this question. What shall we then say to these things? so that we can lay hold of this other statement, if God be for us, who can be against us? For whom he did foreknow. Very important to note that Paul says, for whom, not what. For whom he did foreknow, not what. Foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God is not God's omniscience. 
God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows it all. <laughs> he, he, he created all, so He knows all. He created your bodies, but He knows your thoughts, and, and, and He knows your heart, and He knows your mind. He created the light, but He knows what happens in the darkness. God knows all. He's omniscient. Paul's not talking about God's omniscience. He says, for whom? For whom He did foreknow. This word foreknowledge has to do with a relationship, a relationship based upon God's love. For whom He did foreknow. Not what, but for whom He did foreknow. It's a relationship based on His love, and it's similar to what we find. We find several occurrences of, of this word used uh, in, 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 to describe a relationship. After, you remember what happened to uh, Cain and Abel, right? Well, after that, the Bible tells us that Eve uh, conceived again, that, that Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son. That Adam knew his wife. Adam has known Eve for quite some time now, from just personal knowledge, just from that standpoint. But Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. You see, it was a relationship based on love. It was an intimate relationship. That's what the word know, knew, and other forms indicates. A relationship. The little prophet Amos, he wrote concerning Israel the words of God when he said, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You mean God wasn't aware of anybody else except the Israelites? No, He was aware of everybody of all the nations, but it was only Israel. He says, of all the families of the earth. He said, you only have I known. You only have I established this intimate relationship with. Now we read something very similar, as you might well know, from Matthew chapter 1. After the angel came to Joseph, listen carefully, after the angel came to Joseph, jo Joseph is troubled. His bride-to-be is expecting. She's with child. He knows it's not his. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's ready to put Mary away privately. And the angel comes to Joseph and, and assures him that, he says, Joseph, you, you go ahead and take Mary to be your wife. The child that's conceived in her womb is of the Holy Ghost. And then, of course, Matthew 1, 21, the verse that you're all very familiar with. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But you know what the angel continued to go on? He says there that, not the angel didn't say this, but uh, Scripture says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And we have the prophecy there. Then we have this verse. Joseph, being raised from sleep after the angel appeared to him, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not. Knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn. You see, so this word indicates an intimate relationship. And in this case, a relationship established by God based on his love for whom he did foreknow. For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to, 
be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We get into this, these subjects of predestination, the foreknowledge of God, election. We get into these subjects, and many in the world of Christianity shy away from them. Perhaps they simply don't like them, simply don't understand them. I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons, I suppose. There may be subjects or areas of Scripture that you and I shy away from because we don't really understand them. And the thing is, if we come to an understanding of a subject, understanding of a principle, the understanding of a truth, if that is revealed to us, whether we think that it's right or not, we ought to embrace it because it's God's Word. And so he says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. So that brings in a lot of thoughts there. You can go to Ephesians chapter 1 and, and, and read about, uh, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. Isn't that beautiful? According to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now, it would take sermon after sermon after sermon, or at least it would for me, to get you know, more of the truths out of this. But suffice it to say this morning, Paul is asking you the question, what shall you say to these things? Paul wants us to understand these things so we can embrace what he says when he writes, If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, I need to understand all as much as I can about what God began to do before the world began. Because he was doing some things back then, if I can put it that way. You read that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, right? Where God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God was doing something before the world began, and I want to know all I can about what he was doing because he was doing it for me, I trust. He was doing it for you. You received grace in Christ even before creation. That's amazing to me. And I want to know all about it that I can. For whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. I'm glad it says many brethren, don't you? I'm glad it, I'm thankful it doesn't just say a few. Because if it just said a few brethren, I, that would narrow my chances down pretty slim. I can guarantee you that. But he says many, but you know, it's not by chance anyway, right? Because we're talking about what God has done, what God has chosen to do for you, not giving you a chance to do it for yourself. Because he knew you couldn't. He knew you wouldn't. But I'm glad he says many, brethren. Because that reminds me of what John saw over there in, in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7 when he saw a great multitude of people that no man can number around the throne of God singing praises unto the Lord and redemption and, and, and just, just praising the Lamb. 
a great multitude that no man can number. It, that gives me, it gives me hope. It gives me assurance is what it does. It gives me assurance. It gives me assurance that God has made provision even before the world began that a great multitude of people, those he loved, those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestinated, and he goes on to say whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Do you feel to be called of Christ this morning? Raise your hand. It's okay. Raise your hand in church. Do you Come on. Raise your hand. Do you feel to be called of Christ? You've been called of Christ. You've been called to be like Christ. And that calling goes all the way back to what God was doing before the world began. Say amen. That's something to rejoice about. Am I the only one rejoicing this morning? It's something to rejoice about. What do you say about these things? Paul wants to know. He's asking you, what do you say about these things? Amen. Praise the Lord about these things. Then he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. And the past tense of all of those actions assures they will take place. Because in the mind and purpose of God, they're, they're done. They were all accomplished in Jesus Christ when he lived in this world and paid the ransom and, 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 and obtained eternal redemption for you. For that great multitude of people that no man can number. So what shall ye then say to these things? What we ought to say to these things is, well, if God be for us, <laughs> who can be against us? God is for you. God is for you. He is for all of those whom He foreknew. He is for all of that great multitude of people that no man can number, that he predestinated, that he chose, that who, to whom he gave grace in Christ before the world began. He is for all of them. What does that mean anyway, to be for? It's interesting, I guess that, uh, and my daughter will have to correct me, I think that's a preposition. But it also comes from a, a word that we now use as a prefix, hyper. And it means above. It means beyond. It means over. It means exceedingly abundant beyond. <laughs> That's what God is. He's for you. He is above you. He's over you. He is all about you. He has exceedingly abundantly done things for you. He's for you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? God being for us is demonstrated by these things. All things that God does that works together for your good. The foreknowledge of God. Predestination of God. The call of God. The fact that you stand before Him justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that you will stand before Him one day glorified, having a body like unto Jesus Christ. All of that demonstrates that God is for you. That's what He's done for you. That's what He's done for me. That's something to praise Him about. Amen? So if God be for us, who can be against us? Do these things pertain to everyone without exception? Is, you know, this is a tough question. And while many in the world of Christianity might try to rejoice with us up to this point, there comes this point to where the world, many in the world of Christianity will say, oh, I can't, I can't go there, I can't go that far. Well, from based on what we've seen, what little bit we've seen so far this morning, 
Can it be said that God is for everybody? Can it be said that God has done all of these things for everybody in the world? I think about Psalm, first of all, that just keep on reading into the next chapter, and you'll read about a man named Esau, and God hated Esau. That's another sermon, but God hated Esau. Can I explain that? Probably not to your satisfaction. Why did he do that? I'm not sure. But then I go back to the days that Jesus was in the world, and I go back to the 8th chapter of John, when Jesus is speaking to some of those Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites of that day. And you know what some of the things that he said? You know what some of the things that Jesus said to those people in that day? Let me just share with you real quickly. And ask, let's ask the question, let's try to answer the question, has God done all of these things for everybody without exception? John chapter 8, here's some people that wanted to kill Jesus. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus said, you want to kill me? And they said, you're crazy. you got a devil. You're a madman. We don't want to kill you. What makes you say that? What makes you think that? Jesus says to them in John chapter 8, verse 40, Now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath, that hath told you the truth. Jesus says, I've told you the truth about these things, and all your reaction is you want to kill me. These people he's talking to took great confidence, assurance, and great pride in being descendants, physical descendants, of Abraham. That, that's, that's what a good Pharisee had to do. You know, that's what, what all good Jews needed to do be able to trace their lineage back to Abraham. And these Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites took great pride in the fact that they could trace their lineage back to Abraham. Jesus says, "This is some, you're doing something that Abraham would not have done. Abraham wouldn't have tried to kill me. I'm telling you the truth. And Jesus says to these people, you're trying to kill me. You do, you do, ye do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. Hmm. Jesus didn't say to these people, If you'll start loving me, then God will be your father. Jesus said to these people, If God were your father, you would love me. Jesus goes on to tell them, Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father will ye do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is the father of lies. He says, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. Now that's some tough language. I strongly suggest to you that Jesus is speaking to some. I don't know how many there were. Not many, I suppose. He is speaking to some, though, that God was not for. Bad grammar. God was not for these people. Jesus went on to say, basically to these same people in John chapter 10, when they came to him wanting to know, how long are you going to make us to doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, basically the same group of people, he said to them, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. Jesus just said a little few minutes before that, I'm the good shepherd, 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. But you're not of my sheep. What shall we then say to these things? How do you feel this morning? Do you love the Lord? Is your hope and trust and confidence and faith in Jesus Christ? That's something that God himself placed within you. He sovereignly sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. Into your hearts. He created you anew. He created within you a new creature in Christ. One that was created in righteousness and true holiness. And when he did that, you, he, that, you were born again. You have a new life. A life that you didn't have before. You have spiritual life, eternal life. And now you, have, now you have the desire and the ability to seek the Lord, to serve the Lord, to follow God. You have that desire and the, and the ability where, where you had neither before. He's done that for you. The fact that you love the Lord this morning is evidence that He loved you first. Right? What shall we then say to these things? Whether I understand all of these things or not, I am, if I love the Lord this morning, and I believe I do, if I love the Lord this morning, it's because of what God determined to do before the world began. And whether I understand everything that happened then or was determined, everything that was decided, everything that was done on the cross, everything that, whether I understand any of those or all of those things or not, I can rejoice this morning to know that God is for me. And if God be for me, who can be against me? Paul answers that question when he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can lay anything to the charge of that great multitude of people that no man can number? Who can say to anyone, one, just one single person out of that great multitude of people that no man can number, who can say, Christ didn't die for that sin. He, he didn't die for one sin that you, you, you committed or maybe you omitted something. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What is still outstanding out there concerning your sins that's going to keep you from being a child of God? Nothing. Child of God, if you, you're a child of God today and nobody, no, nothing, no, no demon, no Satan can't do it. No one can lay anything to your charge. Why? Because it is God that justifies. God is the one who declares your just, your innocence, and your innocent before me through the blood of my son Jesus Christ, who I sent into the world, who I did not spare, but sent him into the world to die for you, to obtain that redemption for you. God is saying to us, if I sent my son into the world, if I didn't spare my own son for you, you think I'm going to let somebody else come along and charge something against you that prevents you from being with me one day? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Did I just talk in circles? I don't know. I think that made sense. I was hoping you'd shout about that. Nobody's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. The reason you're not condemned this morning is because Christ died. Not because you accepted, not because you prayed, not because you were baptized, not because you believed, not because of anything that you have done. It's because Christ died for you. That's the reason you're not condemned this morning. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm answering the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul covers it all. He names it all. He doesn't leave anything out. He says, who shall separate us? Oh, we may go through tribulation. We may go through distress. We may, I know what time it is. We, know, we may go through persecution. We may go through all these things. We may experience peril and even the sword, but none of that shall separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? In fact, Paul says, no, in fact, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Oh, people will oppose you. People will do all kinds of things to you, perhaps, but no one can successfully be against you. No one can successfully be against you. That very phrase means to oppose you with the same intensity, force, and power as God has through His love, that God loves you with. The same intensity, no one. The intensity, the force, and the power that God has when He loves you through His love, that force, that power, nothing, nothing is that great. Certainly nothing is greater so nothing can separate you from that love. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. What shall you say to these things? If God be for you, who can be against you? If that condition exists... The conclusion is, no one or no thing can be against you. Praise the Lord. Thank you again for listening. Rocky Mount Church is a primitive Baptist congregation located near Arab, Alabama. We invite you to look us up on the web at rockymountpbc.org. That's rockymountpbc.org. You'll find various resources there on our website as well as additional links to other Primitive Baptist sites. You'll find contact information there, and we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thank you again for listening. We look forward to the next opportunity we can spend some time together. May the Lord bless you, is our prayer. Amen.